Hello and welcome to Talking Flutes. And you may be wondering, my voice isn't associated with Talking Flutes, it's Talking Flutes Extra, because I am the flutey tooty geezer, guy, bloke, Jean-Paul Wright. The reason it is Talking Flutes is because I've come back down to Hove to speak with the flute player, musician, professor, author, golfer, mother and genuinely lovely person is Claire. Hello Claire. Hi John Paul. It's been a while hasn't it since I've been down? I think it has actually yes but it's um, as always it's it's sunny here. (laughs) Yeah when I left Tunbridge Wells this morning it was overcast and I was thinking at last I'm going to come down and we're going to get normal weather. Well, this is normal weather. It's absolutely beautiful down here. Beach is looking glorious. I've been on the dog walk. I had to go on an early dog walk today because you were coming. Mm-hmm. So um, absolutely beautiful down there. And they're both... One's crashed out in between you and I. And Pete is looking the opposite direction, almost as though he's a bit cheesed off with one of us. Well, luckily they've calmed down because they do have a mad half hour when you arrive. <laughs> They do. I, I have that effect on everybody. So, do you actually miss Chipperfield, that lovely village in Hertfordshire? Do you actually miss it at all? Well, the simple answer is no. I don't miss it at all. <laughs> I mean, it was it was fantastic when we lived there. It was a beautiful village. It was great for schools. Great for getting into into town. Wonderful. But we had to drive everywhere, and now here in Hove, we walk everywhere. It's very much more an outdoor place. It feels a healthier place because we're. I said, we walk, we walk to everything. It's brilliant. And you look happier. And oh, I, say, I always say, yeah. you, you, you don't look as though you've got the world of flute playing on your shoulders. <laughs> no, it's a, very, it's a very vital place. You know, it's vibrant and uh, it's, it's good for your mental health. So if you'd been growing up here as a student, do you think you would have been distracted by all the things that are going on rather than having that focus as a young player up and coming? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all, no. Right, thank you for the coffee, by the way. It's in a rather... Anyone who knows me knows I have a little penchant for red. And this is a very dark red. It's almost a rust-coloured. Rust. Rust? Rust Rust-coloured. Oh, rust as in oxidisation coloured, yes. I suppose it is. Or um, copper. That's probably me, rust. I'm the bit that's left behind, the (laughs) very degree. (laughs) um, The reason I've come down, Claire, is we've come in almost to the end of the year. And I thought we could do some podcasts together... Uh, I know yours are much better than mine, and I, I, I will take my hat off to those and look at the analytics. They actually show that you're more popular than me, so I won't cry too much into my milk. But I thought it'd be good if we did some together based around some of the questions that have been coming in during the last few months and um, put these together in a little series leading up to Christmas because we're going to take a break, aren't we? Yep, take a break and have a, a think about uh, how we can get going again in January based on questions coming in and ideas for for more pods yes because i know it's important to you that we have continual podcasts we don't have seasons but we have this regularity one coming each week yes regularity and we're going to alternate with you doing a slightly more light-hearted one and and i'll I'll keep to the slightly more serious flute questions well i can't do serious flute questions (laughs) (laughs) now one question that has come up and it's probably for me actually is the length of podcasts is because you go onto podcast channels and, you know, sometimes they can be 10 minutes, sometimes they can be 20 minutes, and sometimes they can be really long ones. And I'm guilty of doing really long ones. And yet some of the most successful ones that have been done are yours that are much shorter. What's your views on podcast lengths? 
Well, when I've listened to other podcasts, I've always felt that when something is short, you've got time to listen with the time you have, because generally you're listening when you're doing something else. I might be driving the car, I might be doing something around the house, and I just put put a podcast on to have a quick listen to something of interest. So if it's sort of anything from sort of five minutes to 20 minutes, I think that's probably a good length. But if you've got something for over an hour, you've actually got to make a point of sitting down and listening and have that time to do it. Oh, my word, that means... I'm, I'm full of verbiage. I have trouble not talking. <laughs> How can I be concise, Claire? Well, I have no idea, JP, but I think the occasional <laughs> long one is, is, is good. I mean, you've, when you're talking to, to someone really interesting, it, it's good, good to hear it. But, you know, I'm happy to hear what the listeners think about it. Well, some of the feedback came back from that they really liked the fact that you chunked your Wissam podcasts. Yeah. It, it wasn't just one huge one. It was chunked perfectly. And the second one ran really well to enhance the first, which is why we had to run it concurrently rather than having a, a light-hearted one in the middle. Yeah, I think I'm, well, I'm going to put it out on social media because you've got your podcast right. You've got Talking Flutes right because it ranges from sort of... 10 to 20 minutes, doesn't it? In to yes. yours. On average. Yeah, do you know, and I, and I think mine go from 35 to <coughs> over an hour. And, um, <laughs> and this one could be going in that direction. Because <laughs> I'm talking a lot. I know, I know. Sorry. That's, you know, that's a subtle hint. That is a subtle hint for me to shut up, JB. Right, the aim of, as I said, is to cover some of the questions that have been coming in constantly. Now, I know you like me to drip feed the, you them on email as they come in, but I've been rather cruel this time, haven't I? In, you don't know what I'm going to tell you. But we've got, we, so we're going to chunk the podcast down for the next probably two or three to cover all the areas, the questions that have come in via uh, email on flutepodcast.gmail.com, at the TJ Instagram account, and on the Facebook side. And we're going to go straight into this one and talking about you being a professional player. Okay. Right, being a professional player, and I'm, I have to own up here, I haven't, got, I haven't bought with me the names of the people that have sent these in. Okay. So I apologise in advance. Claire's looking at me rather sternly because she always <laughs> likes to credit a question because, you know, it's nice to actually get questions, isn't it? It's great to get questions. I love the questions. Yeah. She's still looking at me rather awfully. I'm feeling guilty as it is. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Right. Question. Question number one. Being a professional flute player, what is it really like? And how does the modern day player cope with the constant pressure of being in an orchestra, soloist or being freelance? So that's a, that's a huge question. Yeah, I'd love to tell you where, where it came from. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with the, the areas that I'm most familiar with. So maybe start with being a soloist. Sure. All right. So um, it's a, it can be a very lonely and solitary existence because, um, you know, you're travelling alone and that's uh, far more tiring and stressful than if you're touring or travelling with a group. I know I was very lucky that I think almost all my touring was with uh, my accompanist, Tim Carey, and that just relieves the the stress, the burden of having to think about everything yourself. So just to have another person with you is really, really good. On those occasions where I was travelling alone, it's you're constantly having to think just about everything, whether it be what from the very planning to your travel arrangements to who you're going to meet to just the, 
the thing about rehearsing. I mean, if you're going to have a different accompanist, maybe in each each venue you go to, so that you've you've got to find rehearsal time, and you don't know what that rehearsal time might be like. Is that a stressful thought in itself? The thought of going not not having a consistent accompanist. Absolutely, absolutely. If you you need to. Uh, if you're, when you've got your own accompanist, that's someone who understands how you play and you've rehearsed and you've, you've maybe you've got a programme for the tour so that you can... I mean, if I give an example of, of the, the last American tour we did, we were literally going to a different venue day after day and we could literally travel in the morning, get to the venue, check the acoustics, go and eat something, do the concert sleep, get up the next morning, travel. And we didn't have to rehearse because we were prepared. If you have to use the, the local accompanist, you need to leave at sort of three hours. So the day becomes really tiring because you have to have a, a long rehearsal or a rehearsal long enough to make sure that you're comfortable with the pieces. And then the concert becomes... There's a little bit more insecurity because you're not quite sure how it might go. So does that bring in nerves? A little bit bring, of absolutely, anxiety. Absolutely. And that's probably, in nerves that, that, that a performance uh, expectation on you because obviously as a soloist you want your performance to do justice to the piece's music and also your own playing. Yes, yeah. It, bring, it, I mean, it brings in so many other stresses. You can't sort of re- relax as you play. I mean, it's lovely when you have your own accompanist and you know your pieces so well that you can just go and play and express yourself freely. And it's sort of a little bit stifled when you don't know the person that's playing piano for you. So you're not as confident to let yourself really go? Not really. And also, the programme you pick is different because of that fact. Oh, you've got to build a security blanket in, have you? Yes. So I I remember the last uh, tour I did to Japan, I was doing a full English programme with new works by... Andy Scott, Mike Mower, and Ian Clark, and that would have been impossible with an accompanist on site. Sure. You know, in Japan, I had to take Tim with me because the parts were so tricky, and it was so difficult to get together. You really had to know the pieces. So, if I'd been without Tim, I'd have had a completely different program. And do you think there would have been subtle differences with Tim being English? and you're playing an English programme, you being English, do you think there could be interpretation subtleties because of the music you're playing, or is that just... No, I don't think so. So it really no. doesn't matter, it's I just don't think technical? So, no. no. Because the accompanist is so important, isn't it? Into the Hugely important. And that it's, it's, you're, you're, a, you're a team, you're part of a team, and as a team, you are communicating the music. And if I can use the analogy of golf... As you know, I do love my golf. You do? Um, So professional golfers have caddies. In fact, they have a whole team around them. But the most important member of their team is the caddy, who they have the same caddy for each competition. And so the caddy knows which club they need, what the distances are that they can hit those clubs, uh, so what is needed for each shot. And they, they advise, so they discuss things together in order to get the right result. So your accompanist is exactly the same. Your, your rehearsal time is where you discuss things and agree how you're going to phrase things and tempo and just how you're going to communicate 
the music. And does the accompanist actually have, or Tim does, but because I've seen Tim work, but do, should the accompanist actually have an input into how you perform? Oh, yes, absolutely. So it literally is a marriage. You know, you can actually fall out of the company so you don't agree with an interpretation? Or? Oh, abso- absolutely. So you can, and, and it's the same whether you're playing in chain music or, or, or in an orchestra. You know, there are discussions about how something should be, how something should be phrased. And the, the thing I've learnt through the years is that you try everything and then you try and make a, a decision based on, on what you hear. So the choice of the accompanist is, is such a major factor in a musician. Yes. And so, and so I, get, I, I can see the point that if you're travelling from town to town, city to city, country to country, with a different uh, accompanist, that could be potentially problematic and, and cause anxiety. Yeah. On the other hand, you meet other wonderful pianists mm. um, and, uh, you know, which are good contacts for other trips, but it just limits you a little bit. So that's being a flute player. How about being in an orchestra? Because that brings different yep. uh, pressures. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Now, talk about two things. as being a freelance player yep. and as being a member of the orchestra. Sure. Okay. So I did a lot of freelancing. So the stresses are different. You're part of the orchestra, but you're not part of the team. Ooh, that's a very subtle but very important difference. Very, very important uh, important difference. So orchestras can tend to have their own sort of cliquey groups. Yes. So um, if it's a local gig, it's not so difficult. But when you're on tour, there are it's social difficulties because you don't really know the people. And um, so when you're, you're on tour, you know, the, the groups, groups go out to eat with each other or if you've got a day off or half a day off, they go and do trips together. And if you're not a member of that group, you're not involved in that group. And, I mean, there are, there are other uh, stresses. I, I remember some of my early gigs with the LSO, my very first ones, where there were very few lady members of the orchestra in fact, I think there were only two or three lady members of the string section, and that was it. Mm. And I remember one of my first gigs, and the, the conductor came in, and he said, Good morning, gentlemen and lady. Ooh. And I wanted the, <laughs> the floor to swallow me up. I mean, it was, I felt so embarrassed. Um, it's, it's very different now. I mean, luckily I had, there was Peter Lloyd uh, yeah, playing lovely. then, and Frank Nolan Piccolo, mm. and they sort of looked after me. But it's it's difficult. It's how difficult. Old were you at this time? Sorry to um, be so personal. How old was huh? I? Quite oh. young, weren't you? Well, I was sort of probably early twenties, I think. That's not a bad gig, the LSO, is it? Early twenties. Not, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> it, was, it was it was very nice. But it is, you know, it's it's different being a freelance player. Now, in terms of being a member of an orchestra. I haven't been a, a member of a big orchestra, but I was uh, a member of a, of a chamber orchestra, Aquarius. And so that feels more like a big club. Sure. All right, so there's a, there's a, a different bond between the players, and everything's organised for you. So that relieves some of the strains and stresses. So, you know, you get like your itineraries. I mean, you do as a freelance player as well, but in a, in a group where you're, where you're comfortable with each other, you work maybe a little bit more as a team so I found that easier I'm sure that people might disagree with me but 
I found that much easier. No, I can actually see the logic. I never actually thought about it, but yeah, if you're freelancing, not being part of the team, but being in the team. In the team. It's such a huge difference with regards to, as you say, just socialising and, you know, in between the uh, concert in the interval or afterwards, just yes. not being invited or feeling uh, free to just go out for a drink or to get yes. involved in conversation. Definitely harder. Oh. Yeah. How about being a professor? Um, that brings it, and again, different pressures, doesn't it? Different pressures because of the responsibilities and... Your, your role is to be of no necessity, if you like. You're facil- are you facilitating or are you teaching? You're teaching and you're giving information with which your students can develop. Sure. All right. But your role is to be eventually unnecessary, that you've given all the information that you can and that they can take that on board and they can then develop and grow. But the role of being a professor at the Royal Academy of Music, which is one of the most prestigious music colleges in the world, does that bring its own stresses because of the the nature of the students you get being very intense? And those... I don't think so, because you you build up to that. You know, you've you've had you have years and years of experience teaching, and you develop a style and a technique uh, with which to give out that information. And so, uh, with all and with all your experience of playing as well, so that you arrive at a place where you feel confident about what it is you're doing, and what, and more importantly, what you're saying. And do all the professors need to sort of gel in their teaching methods, or is there freedom to? I have don't think so. No, I think everyone has their own style. I think the only thing you could say is that certainly at the academy, the style comes from Marcel Moyes and Geoffrey Gilbert. Yes. So there's that thread running through. Uh, and to whip, yeah, um, and that the there's a uh, there's a link between the tutors there, and that that helps that we're giving the the instruction we give. It's sort of slightly different stories, but hopefully with the same result. It sounds like it was actually quite it's more complicated than I thought. Being a professional musician, in just just the coping mechanisms, various coping mechanisms you need depending on the booking. Absolutely. Can Absolutely. you remember your first paid gig? I do. It was a um, a local uh, freelance orchestra in Manchester, and um, it was in it was in somewhere like Grimsby. Oh, so good was, old fishing port. <laughs> yes. So I was I was in Manchester, and it was quite a long journey. But there was a bus, so you bust out there, rehearsal, gig, bus back, home very late. And everything has since been based around a visit. Oh, I'm whistling here. Uh, a visit to Grimsby. Yes. <laughs> so moving on the same sort of subject is that how does a college student or prof- professional musician cope with the constant stress of performance? Do you have any strategic tips and hints you can give them? Because it's a big wide world. It's dog eat dog out there. It is. It is incredibly stressful. So the only thing I say, it's, it's all to do with preparation. If you're not prepared, you create more stress. So making sure that you've done your homework so that if it's uh, an orchestral gig you've got, you get the part or you get the score. You listen to the music. You make sure you know how it goes. So it's your job as a professional to be prepared. 
rather than to go in absolutely cold. Because if you're, if you're doing a, a, a freelance gig, generally you go in, you do the rehearsal and you do the concert. And you might make a mistake once, but you can't make a mistake twice. Ah, no more booking. No more booking. So it's all to do with preparation. So in terms of solo performance, that means there's, you know, in terms of your programme planning and that you've given yourself enough time to learn the programme, to rehearse the programme. And then within your practice, I think we might have talked about this in a previous podcast, the mental preparation so that you, you actually think about arriving at the venue, the, the initial preparation, walking onto the, onto the stage, tuning up and starting your programme. So you actually mentally go through the concert so that you're ready and prepared for it. So mental preparation. So the two key things is make sure that you're physically prepared with the parts, the music, the score... And secondly, being mentally prepared, which is a subject in itself, isn't it? Certainly is. But I think the more you do, the easier it becomes. So you, you become, like in any profession, you learn the tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. So you're not thinking, oh, I must mentally prepare for that. The thing is, you start to do it. And you learn by mistakes, of course. So that you learn that maybe something hasn't gone quite right in a particular performance and you think... You think back, right, what can I do better? Oh, yeah, so you have to change that so it doesn't become a learnt, well, conditioned response that you think, oh, God, that's coming up again. Absolutely. You learn from your mistakes. So it might be, make sure I leave enough time to get there. Just, just to remind me of a, a horrible experience I had that I was doing, I was in a small, a small group. There was a radio programme for school kids based on, on music and stories. And the, the, the chap who did the, the, the radio programme then went on tour around the country for the school kids and he used, I think, four musicians. He was on keyboards and there was a flute, cello and French horn, I think. And so, and I was part of that group and we'd go around, normally in big town halls and they'd have about 2,000 school kids and you'd play the music they'd been listening to on their season of uh, Join the Turn. Okay, yeah. And... The, one of these dates was in Leeds, so I was based in Manchester. And I was driving the horn player and the cellist from Manchester to Leeds. We got stuck in traffic. And so we arrived in Leeds, knowing that there was 2,000 schoolchildren in Leeds Town Hall, waiting for us to play the music they'd be, that they knew. And first of all, so we arrived sort of the time the concert had started, and, or should have started, and... Um, First, it was difficult to find somewhere to park. So I dropped the, the, the cellist and the horn player off at the, off at the gates to the town hall, and I then drove off, found a car, car parking space, ran to the town hall, ran onto the stage, just as the, the chap who was the, introducing, saying, and here comes the flute, and let's hear the flute tune. So I was out of breath, hadn't got the flute out, my flute tune at that time was Anis Song. Oh, yeah. Do you remember it? Oh, absolutely. Right. Beginning of Anis Song. Got my flute out, started beginning of Anis Song, and suddenly went into the horn solo from Chike 5. And I thought, oh no. They're waiting for Anis Song, and I'm in Chike 5, and that was the horn player's solo. 
And I thought, well, I don't know this, I don't know this. But anyway, I kept going and I actually finished, finished the solo. And the compere said, hmm, you might have noticed that that, <laughs> that wasn't... So, Shell, now we hear Annie's song. And I started off again thinking, how, how am, I, am I going to get Annie's song? Will I get Tchaikovsky again? But anyway, I did get Annie's song. And then the horn player had to think of a different, different solo. <laughs> so it was a disaster. Bedinnery, Bach's Bedinnery yeah. on the French horn. Prep- yeah. Preparation, I thought we'd left enough time to get there, but I didn't think that, you know, if there'd be an accident or But is that the traffic? classic place of you getting there and then the brain not engaging? It's like playing a hard piece of music. You're very aware that some hard bits are coming along. You play the hard bits okay, and then you go, you go wrong on the easy bits On the easy bits, absolutely, could be. Yeah, uh, and your your brain is racing when you're when you're more stressed. Your brain races; everything goes more quickly, and it doesn't work. So you wouldn't recommend coffee before you went on. I would never drink coffee. No, I, decaffeinated, maybe, but no. It's it, it, interesting because I, I was I was always hungry before a concert, unlike a lot of my contemporaries who would be who would definitely not eat before anything. I had colleagues who would be almost physically sick before going on to play, whereas I got hungry. If I couldn't eat, I would get nervous. Got you. So I would need to eat, but not drink fizzy drinks. Always difficult as a flute player. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and eat at least, you know, at least an hour before, but need to eat. And clean your teeth before you go on? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, in this podcast, we're doing well. Only three questions, Claire. You're going to keep me. You're going to keep me down time-wise on this one. Um, what attributes? This is with your professor head on. What attributes do music colleges look for in a prospective new student? Uh, I know you've covered a little bit, little bit this in the past, um, but I just want to bring it up because with so many good young players out there, do you have to be brilliant at everything, or can you be a rough diamond? Well, again, the simple answer is, no, you don't have to be brilliant at everything. But the rough diamond bit is of huge importance. So let's say that most students come uh, in at a very high level of ability, musical ability. They'll have had lots of years of of training, orchestral work, private lessons, uh, ensemble lessons, academic music. So the students know most of them know how competitive the music is. The real enthusiasts will have been on flute courses, attended master classes, had uh, uh, consultation lessons, uh, listened to all the prominent players, so they would have the fingers on the pulse of what's needed. So it's interesting, when we ask a question in auditions about any of these subjects, how, me- how many students, they haven't done any of those things. So you think, well, you want to come to a music college and specialise in flute, and yet you haven't listened to players. Could we say to you, know, you know, what players do you listen to? And they're stumped. I mean, generally speaking, they'll all say Jimmy Galway. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody else. Oh, correct. And you say, well, what have you listened? And then they can't tell you the piece they've listened to. Or what did you like about the performance? And they can't really tell you. Is that, so, a, is that a general naivety on their part? Or really they're just... They haven't taken the seriousness of the position they're applying for. Yes, I, th- I think if you're passionate about something, you'll have researched, read about it, 
listened to it, attended events, because you're passionate about it. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about golf, but I'm not a professional golf player, obviously, <laughs> but I watch golf, I read about golf, I go to golf events. True. You know, you can talk because about golf, it's yeah. my passion. When I was, uh, um, before I went to college, I went on flute courses, I went to concerts, I got my way to go to concerts. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't have computers or media then, so you, it was it was very difficult to, to find out information. But you, you know, you asked around and you you looked at the the concerts are in in town, and then and then you went. So the rough diamond is what you're looking for, but the rough diamond that actually has the passion that can be backed up by the enthusiasm, by knowing flute players, knowing the repertoire. Uh, having attended flute courses, having listened to concerts, and you can forgive not being the polished, final polished. Yeah, I mean, musical, musical, musicality is of, yeah. is primary importance. Is that, the, is that what you listen to most in a, an audition? I do. Right. All right. So, but there has to be a high level of technical ability. There isn't time to spend the first years on sorting out technique. You can sort some technique out, but say, for example someone has um, throat vibrato or poor finger technique, poor hand positions, and you can hear that that hinders what they're trying to say with the music, you know that's going to take so long to sort it out. And so you can't take, take that on. You've, you've got to have a high level of technical ability in order to then communicate your music. And, of course, then you also can hear students with great technique but no music. So some students might have been really well taught. So we know the teachers. You can see who's, be, who's teaching who. And you can almost predict how that person is going to play on a technical level by the, the teacher that has taught them. So if someone turns up they're very technical, do you think that you, in the space of the next three, four years, there is an ability to unlock the musicality? Or do you think the musicality must be there when you audition? We test, as I talked about uh, music uh, college auditions in a previous yeah. podcast, and at the academy, it's your musicality is tested in terms of sight reading, not hard sight reading, simple sight reading, to play a beautiful phrase, to, to, to let the music come through. And generally speaking, if you've got a very technical player where you're not hearing the music, where it's maybe... Sometimes it could, someone could have learnt something so well that they're not free with the yeah. music. And then they play a phrase and it comes out. More often than not, the simple phrase doesn't come through. Uh, you know, so they've, they're being taught to play technically very, very correct. But there's, there's no music. Crikey. So there is no hard and fast answer, is there? It's, you'll take the rough diamond providing they have... You can see the roots, you can see the energy, you can see the fact that you don't have to take them back too far, too many steps to, to run forward. Um, yeah. But you'd rather have someone that has got that enthusiasm, the technique, the musicality, that you can actually guide forward rather than have to take backwards. Yeah, and, and then if you look at the difference between maybe auditioning for a music college and then maybe university, is that from a music college perspective, we're looking at not only their their current level of ability, but the potential for the development. Oh, so you have to put a potential measure on yes. cracking. Yeah, so you can hear the ability and you can hear the potential. And then you think, I really want to help nurture that. 
And more often than not, you'll hear someone that is playing very well, but you, you feel that it might have come to the, reach their limit sure. and that it would be a struggle to, to take them any further. So there's a gut as well. There's a gut feeling that yes, comes through. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my word. So you can't just sort of take the, uh, the, one of the panel out for a, a coffee and a cake and uh, sweet talk them. They've got to have that gut. Yes. You take it as you hear it on the day. And that's how it should be, I suppose. It, absolutely how it should be. Because quite often, of course, you'll hear someone that you know already, that you've heard, you've had a, um, a consultation lesson or you've heard in a masterclass or on a summer school, and you, you know what they've previously done, but you've got ten minutes with which to show it in that audition. It's just a small window of opportunity. Oh, right, so you push everything else away. You and have you to, do... because then it's not fair to the people that you don't know. You really need to give them an opportunity to show what they can do. And, of course, second, the second part of auditions give them another opportunity. Sure. Yeah. Claire, thank you. And in keeping with my desire, or your desire, that I keep the podcast much shorter, I think we will call this one to a conclusion. I know we have lots more questions, which we'll cover in some later pods, but thank you once again for inviting me down, and is it time for another coffee? I think it is. Thanks, Claire. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.